Shirley Tetter is a leading light on the UK jazz circuit as a guitarist and an alt-pop singer-songwriter under the name Nardede. Shirley features in Jazz Jamaica, Groundation, Maisha, Naria, which was Jazz FM Awards nominee for Breakthrough Act of the Year, and many more. Shirley's style is known to combine jazz with left-field pop, and she is becoming one of the most important jazz musicians in the UK. Shirley, I'm so excited that you are here. I think I'd like to dive straight in by asking you, what do you think is the purpose of art? Ooh, that's a that's a good question. I remember like when I was probably like 21, Zadie Smith was one of my favorite authors. And I had like a quote up on on my wall of an interview where she said the purpose of art is to tell the truth. Thought that was really cool. Um, now I don't know what the purpose of art is, uh, apart from that um, I enjoy the practice of it. The the coming back to your instrument or to um, songwriting and the the kind of you're doing it for the sake of doing it, you know. And in there is like a kind of all the the whatever the joy or the whatever it is you can learn from just doing the practice in and of itself. I've just started reading a book by uh, Shinryu Suzuki, who, or it was, it was like a compilation of um, talks that he gave. He was this um, Soto Zen Buddhist teacher. It's called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and it's kind of credited with like popularizing Soto Zen Buddhism in the West. I just read this thing that says um, form is form and enlightenment is enlightenment or something like that. And it's like this discussing this idea of dualism versus non-dualism in in Zen practice and I guess kind of in art, but like, you know, um, people meditating to achieve enlightenment. He's like, if you do that, then you're kind of thinking in a dualistic way. And so you're sort of missing the point. This is my paraphrasing that it might be a bit wrong, but um it's kind of, you, if you were to like, look at that from the point of view of art, like what is the purpose of art? It's like, maybe do it first and then at least you experience the purpose from an experience, experiencing it point rather than what is the purpose and I need to achieve the purpose. Oh, that's so interesting. So how would you then describe your artistic process? Um, I don't know. I sit down. Um, let's say it's to write a song. Um, I'll sit down, I'll take out like some paper or a notebook. Um, uh, or maybe my guitar first, start with, um, some chords I like or something that I like, or, you know, some drum programming that I like, um, and, uh, stick with kind of eking it out until it feels like this, this feels all right. You know, um, like I've got a sequence that I like, or, um, I have an idea of where I want to go with it. Um, yeah, it, it, I guess it depends on, on, um, the, the thing I'm trying to do, but yeah, typically like with a song, it, it might be some drum programming or like starting with my guitar. And then I keep going in that direction until something says, okay, now something else needs to happen. And then I look for the other thing that needs to happen. It could be like, maybe I want lyrics on, or maybe I don't. Maybe it's just like interesting vocal melodies, or maybe I'll have a look in my kind of sample pack. Samples are kind of like a collection of sounds 
that you you know you might want to use in a recording or something and then just look around until something goes yeah that's interesting or I like that sound and then so it's kind of quite intuitive. How would you describe that intuition? Like how do you know when something feels right? I keep working on something until I lose a feeling of like almost irritation. Irritation is the right word but like just there's like I can almost feel like a space in the back of my imaginary non-physical body that's like incomplete you know um so I keep going until it's like um it's not that it feels perfect but it's like I can't do it any better which means it's finished you know of all of the paths that you could have taken why did you choose jazz I kind of wanted something I could really dig my teeth into um and get lost in that's you know that's what um what I wanted and it was either going to be jazz or heavy metal so I tried heavy metal for like two weeks and it I was kind of like ah this is really hard let me let me try jazz as if that's <laughs> as if that's so much easier right <laughs> right I didn't know that at the time thank god I think it's good to know when it's good not to know when stuff is perceived as difficult I think it just felt familiar more familiar to me I think the 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 music I'd been studying up until that point, like rock blues, blues, I'd been playing a bit of gospel music, but it, it just felt more familiar. And um, I think the thing I love about it is that it, it's, again, the practice of it. It's like you can never learn all of jazz. There's no such thing. That statement is just doesn't exist, you know, um, because the moment you discover a certain set of possibilities, let's say you learn a new scale or a new standard or a new, uh, like you, you're, you're practicing perhaps a new pattern of putting a scale together. Um, it's like immediately you get an infinite set of possibilities just from the ones that you've explored. So you just, you 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 know, it's never ending. I think that's really beautiful. Mm. A little like life, you know, infinite amount of choices that we can take. In a sense, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, which can sometimes be a bit daunting when you think of it like, you know, I can make a million and one decisions and what's the right decision and what's the wrong one. Um, and I read something really interestingly um, that was <laughs> um, same book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, um, about like deciding whether a decision is good or bad or whether you're deciding to do something or not to do something. And um, I think what I read was like, it's impossible not to do, like you're either doing one thing or doing another thing. So you have a choice between doing something and then um, not to do something, which is essentially doing something. So it's like, if you put good, the words good and bad on it, you're confusing yourself. Really, it's just a choice of like, do this one thing or do another thing. So you don't actually have all the choice you think, because um, in that moment, you can't, you can't actually separate time um, from space in that you can't be somewhere else other than here. So I think that's quite, that was quite interesting. Um, it takes a bit of the pressure off of a decision. And when you're improvising as well, like you have, I imagine, all those infinite choices of places that you could go. Mm -hmm. Does that philosophy help you when it comes to improvisation? I think when you're improvising, it happens, it's, it, things are happening really fast. So you actually don't have time to sit down and think what option should I choose? Or rather, if you are thinking you've missed what it can make improvising harder it can make the experience of it kind of uh paralyzing because you're trying to you know mm. so it's like that i think the time where you can improvise and it flow um without any any kind of unnecessary um 
stop signs coming up, you know, um, is, is when you're sort of, you're not thinking in the normal sense. You're not thinking with thoughts. It's kind of like, it's like a mixture of um, awareness and reacting, if that, that makes sense. Um, reacting to what? To everything that's happening. So like, you know, let's say you're playing with two other musicians. They're providing you a lot of information, assuming you're listening to them, which is a whole other conversation. Um, let's say that you are, let's say that you have the ability to listen to um, everybody around you in real time, which is a skill that you, um, I think is undervalued and, and not necessarily taught in terms of how to develop it. But, you know, let's say that you are, it's like being able to have a conversation with two other people in real time where all three of you are speaking and all three of you are understanding each other and all three of you are, you know, like constantly modifying what you're saying in to take into account what everyone else is saying, which is, which is really like improvising is really lovely in the sense that you have the ability to do that. Wow. So there's a real connection between you and the other musicians. It's like, I had never thought about it like that as a conversation. Um, wow. Is that how you started to train that ability to listen? Uh, actually, the, the thing that really helped me um, in terms of listening to other musicians and that continues to help me the more I do it is um, how much I practice rhythm. Because I think what's happening is when people are playing, essentially you're just kind of assigning pitches to various rhythms. Mm -hmm. The more you can hear rhythms occurring uh, both independently and dependently of each other, and the more you can hear rhythm as separate from pitch, the more you can hear it all as one piece. And I think that's something certainly in the UK, I, I, they don't really, um, music education, I think, you know, a lot of emphasis is put on harmony and melody. And rhythm mm -hmm. is kind of like the thing that supports those two. Um, whereas if you were to see the various elements that go into making music as equal, in particular, spending a lot of time on rhythm, I think perhaps our ability to listen to each other would um, would, would increase just because it, if you can only hear rhythm and pitches occurring at the same time, you're kind of limited in how much you can really hear, I think, you know, yeah. And is it just a matter of listening to those rhythms to get better at it? What I started doing was um, I, I was very fortunate in that I... Um, encountered an organization called the tomorrow's warriors and they help get young people into jazz they've been doing it for like 25 plus years um countless jazz musicians in the uk have um, come through uh, the tomorrow's warriors so i had a, a really cool teacher um called nathaniel facey who used to take uh, saturday sessions and he introduced us to the music of steve coleman who's this alto sax player steve coleman is is um i think very influenced by um, various things that he saw in the music of Charlie Parker, specifically the relationship between Charlie Parker and Max Roach, who played together quite a bit. Max Roach, the great drummer, and Charlie Parker, the great alto sax player, was kind of this rhythmic counterpoint. So like people boxing and jabbing. So like Charlie Parker would play a phrase and then you'd have Max Roach underneath kind of like reacting in real time and embellishing what's going on. So you have like two separate rhythms occurring at the same time. And then the the music of Bree Swazzy, brilliant Cameroonian drummer who like is for me a genius. And it's like a huge, huge, huge um, like desire of mine for everybody to know who he is because he's just that brilliant, you know. 
Um, but like he'll have music where there are like um, sort of nestled, nestled rhythmic cycles. Um, so it's like there'll be, um, let's see, uh, there could be like a vocal pattern and then like a clave and then a bass line and uh, an alternative bass line and two other things going on. There's this tune he has called Flip Swing. There's a vocal pattern um, which is like and it's there is a there is a beat one, but I think the emphasis of this kind of music is not necessarily how important the beat one is. It's more like knowing the the rhythm super well because on top of that, there's also a bass line that hooks up rhythmically at different places. So what you find yourself doing is um, having to learn how to coordinate two rhythms at the same time. So um, I think one of the first things I might have learned was um, a tune called Multiplicity of Approaches, which has a drum beat that goes do do get 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 do get 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 do do get get get. And then it has a clave that goes do do get 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 do get 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 do do get get get. And then it's got a bass line on top of that. Um, and then it's got the drum line on top of that. And there's another, there's all sorts of other rhythmic things you could do on top of that. So it's like the more I start to practice that, the more I could hear um, when I, let's say I come back to playing the kind of standard repertoire of jazz, which is like, you know, show tunes from the, 20s and 30s and you know all sorts of tunes that people have written people like Thelonious Monk and stuff um it's like I could kind of hear um all the uh, well I say all I'm beginning more and more to be able to hear the rhythms that people are playing in real time because I'm practicing putting rhythms together that I haven't normally practiced so it's like I'm not an expert I'm not I'm you know I'm still learning and I'm still practicing but I think the more I do it it's like the the more um the more harmony opens up you know that in a sense because like now I can actually hear it as opposed to maybe just hear just be soloing and suddenly hear a drum phrase and then be like oh I'm going to respond to that drum phrase and then all of a sudden I'm going to go back to concentrating on playing what I'm playing and then just very having a very general awareness of what other people are doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. And when you say respond, like you said to the drums, mm. so the drums might give you something and then what, how do you decide what a response is? I love I that question. I imagine a lot of instinct comes in here, but. Yeah, no, it's a brilliant question because I think like, um, I think phase one of um, quote unquote listening in jazz when you're just starting to discover that you, you're you not just playing on your own. You really are playing with other people, potentially, if you happen to be playing with other people. It's like the, the, the first thing you, you learn to do is like to copy what other people do, which is like, like, you know, let's say you have a little toddler and they're learning how to speak. They're copying the phrases that you copy and you go, oh, that's really cute. Oh. And then you realise that a response doesn't mean that you have to copy the the, the phrase that the other person has, has um, played and then after a while you can naturally start to discover that there are other ways of um, responding ways that feel subtler or ways that maybe you're craving in terms of your practice um, so it's not that it's not that copying the other person's phrase is wrong it's just that you start craving something else maybe or maybe not maybe you're just practicing and you you just discover more as you practice um, however it is you get there I think um, the thing that 
I really enjoy about um, Miles Davis's second great quintet, which was um, which included Miles Davis, of course, um, Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock, Ron Carter, and Tony Williams. Was that you? You know, they had a whole load of recordings where it's almost as if they decided to play the unexpected thing, you know, in response to whatever it was they were hearing as a sort of practice device. I think that's that that is super useful. It's it's a way of getting you um outside of um I'm just going to respond um the way I've habitually been responding. And I still haven't answered what a response is. <laughs> um because I mean is there an answer? When you're playing um, when you're playing with people, I like the idea of kind of approaching playing with other people as if everything that occurs was meant to occur. Like mm. everything that happens musically, everything that someone plays is is beautiful, brilliant. You know, you respond that way in the moment. You, uh, you um, approach it that way in the moment. And then outside of that moment, you can go away and practice and be like, hey, maybe we need to work on X, Y, Z. But in the moment that's the that's the way to making music that um for me feels quite uh free of unnecessary obstacles does that make sense Mm. um like like um self-consciousness or like attempting to force the music in a particular direction because you don't think the what the person plays is good enough or i think if you um respond like everything that occurs is amazing that's the way you that's your best chance of making it amazing you know yeah um i think um i think ultimately a response is simply awareness of what someone has done because immediately everything that happens is is right in a sense you know so if you're aware and perhaps you've been practicing other things like you know um playing playing something unexpected um then it just becomes this really beautiful kind of non-prescriptive mix of um people speaking together so that's why i'm saying a response that's why i haven't said what a response is because like someone like a drummer making a really loud hit let's assume that there's a drummer there because of course there doesn't have to be but let's say they make a really loud hit you don't have to make a loud hit as a response that that your response could be letting it breathe. And that's why I'm coming back to awareness. Like if if you're aware that that's what they've done, you're listening to the music that you want to play and you're practicing, um, then like there doesn't necessarily need to be a prescriptive idea of what the response is. I totally get where you're coming from. And it sounds like when you're saying that response is awareness, you're saying also that the response is everything that happens after someone did something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in a sense. I think, you know what it is? It's awareness and being grounded in awareness as opposed to like being like in your being in your mind like oh that was so amazing what that what just happened there like the moment you you're sort of just like grounded in that kind of your listening and your practices to come back to listening. You have um you, I want to say, I was going to say your best option, but it's not really about it being your best option. It's like, um, I don't know that this is the best analogy, but I'll give it a go and then maybe I'll walk it back. So like, I'm talking to you right now. The more kind of um, just aware I am of what you're saying and and what I'm seeing, what I'm responding to, 
the more able I am to choose a response or intuit a response that feels appropriate for that moment. Yep. I get what you mean, because when you're present, you can, and you're truly listening, and I really relate to this as an actor, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you, the, the moment will determine what is needed. Yeah. As opposed to forcing anything or um, overthinking anything, just kind of letting it mm -hmm, mm -hmm, flow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, I mean, I guess that it can, can kind of sound <laughs> a bit pie in the sky, <laughs> Um, but like it also, I think the more you practice it, the better you get at just, um, being open to what might happen. What has jazz taught you about life? Uh, yeah, a couple things. Um, so I think jazz has taught me a lot of things that it took me a while to understand, really understand the answer, you know? So for example, like, um, I would experience not being able to practice if I didn't feel like it, you know, or at least that's what I was thinking. That's what my thinking was at the time. And um, I'd look over at some of my friends who perhaps had, um, you know, just as many kind of thoughts of like themselves not being good enough as I, I was experiencing, but they still practiced anyway. And I, um, so, that was one thing is like, you can practice even if you feel absolutely terrible because those two things aren't mutually exclusive. <laughs> and that's not me saying, Hey, you know, um, stiff up a lip. Don't, don't give any space to your emotions. I just mean you can do both. And that's a, that was a, that was a big lesson. Um, because it, it, it meant it's, it's like what I'm, what I'm, uh, understanding now about emotions and, and, and thoughts is that, um, there's kind of like, no, they're not really mine in a sense. I'm experiencing them, but then I don't own them, you know? So like, I, they don't have to mean anything really horrible and that makes it easier to just experience them and then move on. That's not something I necessarily knew when I was first learning that lesson. It was just like, why can all these people practice even though they're feeling terrible? I don't understand. Like, what, what is that? Um, um, the other thing that I think any activity teaches you is that, like, um, is, is, is ultimately um, something about the laws of cause and effect. Like, all activity, all activity that is activity is governed by the laws of cause and effect in the in this phenomenal world so what that means is if i want to learn how to play a certain way what i need to do or uh, what i could do is figure out all of the causes that go into learning that thing the other thing it taught me is that when it comes to cause and effect uh, i think this happens quite a lot is like uh let's say um i want to learn how to play stairway to heaven and, you know, I'm sitting there practicing and I try maybe five different methods of practicing over a, a course of like six months. And then I sit down and I go, oh, I've tried everything. How come I'm not where I want to be in terms of being able to play this tune? It's like, well, no, you haven't tried everything. You tried those five things. So what that means is you tried the five things that didn't work. So that, um, that kind of like, oh, nothing works, which is like a, 
a really vague statement that you know that doesn't it isn't particularly um descriptive of like you know what about what doesn't work you know be specific i think language is quite hypnotic in that sense we can kind of trick ourselves into believing um incomplete statements it's that um that that whole if you've ever sat there and been like i've tried everything and it doesn't work no most likely you've tried everything that doesn't work potentially but you would need to like inquire into and be very specific about what it is you've done when it is you've done it and that requires a sense of like um um a clarity of inquiry there that you would have to then practice to develop number one number two perhaps you did um perhaps you did one or two things that that did work but maybe the effect you needed required an extra three or four so like if you do one or two things that do work, they will always have some kind of effect. But if you need an extra three or four, then, you know, it won't add up to where, where it is you want it to, you know. And that's obviously it's a very simple way of describing this thing that I'm talking about. But it's just like being very, very clear about the laws of cause and effect and, um, you know, how that affects, well, how yeah, your knowledge of them and like kind of perhaps taking away any kind of moralizing out of that, you know, it's got nothing to do with being a good person or a bad person. It's just the laws of cause and effect. So that's more than anything. I think that's what jazz is, what practicing has been pointing me towards um, is that like there's, there's no morality here, meaning you don't have to feel terrible if you can't play something and you don't have to feel amazing if you can. It's got nothing to do with that. It's mm. literally what have you practiced? How long have you practiced it for? How effective was it? You know, taking into account also how you learn and your your body, your maybe your body type. You know, my fingers might be able to pick up certain things quicker than you know someone else because of my because of my body type and my past experiences and whatever. So it's like, yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does completely. Okay, penultimate question: Why do you think the world needs jazz? Um. I like a world with this music in. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, I love the, the 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 practice, the opportunity for kind of a deep commitment to practice that it offers. You know, whether you're kind of, you've been practicing every day for the last 18 years or you haven't, <laughs> you know. I remember an experience I had with a good friend of mine, Moses Boyd, who's a brilliant drummer. And when we were sort of first going to Ronnie Scott's, um, which is this, uh, the famous jazz club in London. We, uh, we were going, this is when they, um, they only had, they didn't have the late, the late shows. So they didn't have like the late jams that happened. Um, the late, late show. They had, uh, jams upstairs. The jazz jam was on Wednesday nights and it was headed by a guy called Michael Moenzo, who used to bring all these really cool artists over from the U S why I say bring them over. It's just that he knew them. So they used to come down. Um, and he, and he, like, he was a like brilliant MC, you know, um, really, um, super welcoming to those U S musicians and helping to create a vibe. And there was this, um, one pianist who actually comes from Doncaster, but lives in New York now, I think, um, or lives in the U S guy called John Escreet. And, um, up until then the jazz that I'd been listening to, that was about 18, 19, 18, 19, the jazz that I'd been listening to was like, what? people might often describe as bebop or hardbop um which is like a very particular kind of you know it it has a particular kind of sound chord sequences have go a particular kind of way i mean you know genre names you know and uh, pe 
people feel here and there about them. So I'm just, you know, whatever. Um, but I didn't know that jazz could sound any other way than that. I didn't know. Or that you could reinterpret, um, reinterpret the harmony that was already there in a way that might sound different to people. Because it's not actually, it's not different. It's, it's the same lineage, but that's a, you know. Anyway, so um, John Escreet, um, John Escreet showed up and um, it was like, it was like, you know, if you're an ant on a basketball, that whole kind of the ant, the ant on the basketball kind of um, like if you're an ant on a basketball, you think the basketball is the whole world. Right. So John Escreet came in um, and like I had never heard anything like that. That was, was basically like this world, this whole door opening into like a completely different world of of improvising, although it isn't different. It's the same, actually. There's, there's you know, it. it, it it's the same and different in a sense from like um, the world of Herbie Hancock and Charlie and then further and then Charlie Parker and then Louis Armstrong. It's like, it's, it's the same, but it's different. Um, um, so at the end of the night, he, um, it must've been a, all the things you are, which is this really popular jazz standard. Um, it's like he kind of unpacked, the harmony of the song like he took the clothes out of the suitcase and then put them back in a completely different order and you know I, me and Moses were just sitting there like silent speechless side by side and then we looked at each other at some point and we were like what is this like <laughs> what we've just like we've just seen the future and it's not that um I'm, I mean the music had been happening for a while it's just we hadn't heard it yet you know so it's just like um that experience of just hearing something that, you know, that felt like it was a music, it was just felt completely fresh and new and interesting. And, and like, what the hell is that? I have no idea what that is. Um, and then like the, um, and then, you know, okay. So I found out about John Escreet and John Escreet led me to Ambrose Akimusire eventually, you know, who's like a, a great trumpet. For me, I've, I don't think I've ever heard anybody improvise like him until him, you know? So it's like every time I hear a musician that kind of somehow receives all, receives a bunch of information about, about that lineage and tradition of improvising and then like re kind of, it's almost as if, um, you can both repurpose it, rearrange it, re, you know, rejig it and also receive something that doesn't yet exist and then like bring it into existence. It's like you're pulling music from the heavens almost that doesn't exist. That's what, um, you know, I kind of got addicted to that feeling of like, you know, um, oh my God, I've never heard anything like that. What the hell is that? Um, same when I heard Derek Trucks play slide guitars. Like I have never ever in my life heard anybody play slide guitar like this man. It's like, it's like he, it didn't exist and now it does, you know, it's like a, the ant suddenly growing legs and walking and discovering that there's a whole universe outside of the basketball. And then that happening again and again and again. Wow. Um, mind blowing. It is mind blowing. It's, it's so exciting and so mind blowing. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Shirley, I'm really loving this conversation with you. Unfortunately, I have to ask you my final question. If you could step inside the mind of another artist for a day, who would it be? And what would you like to specifically explore whilst you were there? Um, yeah, there are so many, there are so many. Um, 
that it's um maybe it's like rather than one artist because there are so many <laughs> maybe it would be um that if if there is sort of like a universal artist mind that Ooh. is constantly connected to that kind of the heavens Ooh. you know <laughs> i know this is it sounds like a cop out um because like i i couldn't choose like I, I couldn't choose it I is a difficult I, question no i can't i can't choose i'd have so many questions for so many different artists like i you know i want to know why joni mitchell could write little green um and then like the whole of blue and then the whole of hijira and then the whole of you know um yeah i couldn't i couldn't i i can't answer that um there there are too many but i do think that i'm really interested in um artists who experience kind of continual artistic growth so for me that is like a joni mitchell and uh john coltrane um and although maybe um i don't maybe he wouldn't want me putting him in the same category because i i don't mean to like i think with, with john coltrane he's so legendary that people like i think people can get really upset when you start talking about other artists in the same in in the same space so that's not what i'm looking to do i just mean that when i see someone who who continues to grow throughout their career i you know i would like to experience why like what what um what is it that um brings them back to their practice um continuously like what is the inspiration there i think ambrose akimusare is one for me and I, I remember him telling a story about um like him almost coming to the point where he 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 got to a, a point in his practice where he's like do i continue to practice because i can kind of play um i'm quite you know it's like it was I don't know if that's what he said I can kind of play but like it's it's like he almost had to decide like decide whether he was going to continue practicing or not and he decided to I think like those kinds of mo you know moments um are super important but also the everyday like what keeps you growing every day what motivates you to do that maybe it's not even motivation because motivation isn't always there but like why do you keep doing it um uh and um yeah it kind of brings me back to the idea if i bring it back to what i've been reading recently is the pra practicing for the sake of practicing um uh and then happening to perhaps obtain something special because of the practice but that wasn't the point of the practice you know um but also it is and it isn't, you know. So it's like that's that's what I'd want to know. So I guess cop out, but th there you go. There's the <laughs> there's the answer. Well, as you've explained through our conversation, you know, there is no such thing as bad. You know, that's just a judgment, right? There's no mm. good or bad. Only thinking makes it so. So there's no bad answer you yeah. can give as well, Shirley. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Shirley, thank you so much for joining us in this conversation. It's been wonderful to understand how you see what you do and why you do what you do. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you asking. So, If you'd like to support us, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
and share this episode with a friend who you think will also enjoy this conversation. This show is brought to you by Slow Cooked Productions. The poster artwork was created by the talented graphic designer Kleber Almeida, and the soundtrack that you're hearing was created specifically for Slow Cooked by the awesome composer Wild Camp. I am your host, Louise Salter. Thank you for listening to Slow Cooked. <laughs>